Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today we're going to jump into something pretty controversial. Burkas. They are those veils that are worn primarily by Muslim women. Mm -hmm. They are sort of full body sheets where you just have sort of a mesh screen for the eyes. Yes. And they have been in the news a lot lately because of French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Right. He gave a speech in 2009 in which he called burqas, quote, a sign of subjugation of the submission of women. And um, he vowed that they would not be welcome in France because the country didn't believe that a woman should be, quote, in prison or, quote, deprived of identity. And uh, I believe in France, which has, by the way, the largest mu- Muslim population in Western Europe, um, a woman was actually denied citizenship uh, to France for wearing a veil. Right. They said she hadn't assimilated properly. So this is... Um, the first big instance of a of a country with you know a pretty big Muslim population, it's going to have pretty widespread effects. Coming out and saying this is you know bad for women, right? Just this piece of cloth that covers their eyes. And I think this is so controversial because it's it kind of highlights a big culture culture clash. You know, in the West, we tend to think of you know the idea of a woman being fully veiled as you know, something very sexist as something possibly like violating her human rights as, you know, like sheltering her away from society and not granting women equal rights. Whereas in um, certain Muslim cultures, it is a sign of piety. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a outward symbol of their religious devotion. Mm-hmm. And how dare we, you know, put it into law that they can't freely practice their religion. Right. I mean, what kind of culture would we be to say, hey, we have freedom of religion, but not wear a burqa's yeah. related? Yeah. Um, but the problem is, uh, is it's impossible to separate the burqa from terrorism. Because think back to when uh, all those troops went into Afghanistan to take mm-hmm. on the Taliban right after 9-11. 
there were all these images on the news of, you know, when the, when the women came out and took off their burqas for the first time, you know, it was, you know, just the symbol of liberation of this freedom from an oppressive regime. And I remember actually there was a, a big uh, benefit that Oprah did once where she symbolically took off a woman's burqa. Mm-hmm. And so I think that because, uh, it's so easy to associate, uh, burqas with terrorism, it's going to be a very, um, you know, difficult conversation we're about to have because we're going to take a step back and see what this piece of cloth actually means. And to some feminists, this is just, you know, not even a conversation worth having. It's oppressive. That's the end of it. But usually when Kristen and I hear that that's the end of it, we want to go a little bit deeper. Right. Because I cannot think of another piece of clothing that is now so steeped in politics, uh, culture wars, um, you know, religious history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's try to maybe just sift through both sides of this pro and anti burqa argument and find out why exactly women wear them in the first place. Okay. Let's start with just some simple vocab, because I think that over here we have a tendency to see any veil or headscarf and call it a burqa. Right. But that's wrong. That's not, that's not what a burqa is. A burqa, like you said earlier, is the full body veil um, where you can't see the entire face is covered up and you might just have a uh, kind of a mesh screen so that you could that you can see out of mm-hmm. now in other countries you may not have the mesh screen but you would still have sort of um, almost everything but you'd have kind of like the head covering the full mm-hmm. body covering maybe you'd see like just the whole face yeah that's um, typically called in Saudi Arabia in a baya. And it's called a Shador in Iran. And both of those countries are the two left that mandate that women cover themselves out Mm -hmm. in public. But they, you know, don't have their eyes obstructed in any way. Now, when we're speaking just of head coverings, we would be referring to a hijab. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, general term for any kind of headscarf that may or may not have a cloak attached to it, like the burqa. Now, the controversial add-on that you can put to the hijab is called a niqab. And that is the face veil. It does leave the eyes um, open. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's not no mesh screen, but it's very controversial because it's basically everything but eyes. You can't see a mouth. Um, so that's a niqab. And I thought that uh, it was interesting that in Arabic, hijab means barrier and partition. But when you put it in um, an Islamic context, in a religious context, it refers directly to their principles of modesty and behavior um, that they believe that uh, Muhammad was a proponent of. Mm-hmm. So basically hijab means both that covering, the head covering, but also just the principle itself. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the verses in the Quran that basically advocate any hijab. So this information is coming largely from the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Quran, um, we have two major passages that refer to women's dress, how a woman should uh, clothe herself and the type of modesty. So I will read the first one. This comes from chapter 33, verse 59. And these, again, are translations from the BBC. It says, O prophet, tell thy wives and daughters and the believing women that they should cast their outer garments over their persons, that it is most convenient that they should be known as such and not molested. Okay, and I'll read the second one, which is chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. It starts off, Say to the believing men that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty. That will make for greater purity for them. And Allah is well acquainted with all they do. And say to the believing women that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty, that they should not display their beauty and ornaments except what must ordinarily appear thereof. 
So obviously, you know, women are supposed to uh, dress modestly. Mm-hmm. Cover themselves. Yeah. And that's not that uncommon. We have the same thing in Jewish and Christian traditions as well, other major religions. Um, but especially in that second, um, second passage we read from chapter 24, verse 30 to 31, there have been, um, a lot of debate about what different parts of it mean, because some scholars say that if men should lower their gaze and guard their modesty and women should also lower their gaze, then, you know, it doesn't mean like, why would a man have to look away from a woman if she's entirely covered? Mm-hmm. Why does she need to wear a burqa and a man lower their gaze? And then we've just got people stumbling around. Yeah. Um, and then we also have um, some arguments over the phrase, except what must ordinarily appear thereof. So some would say that uh, the hands and the face um, must ordinarily appear. Therefore, they don't need to be their faces don't need to be covered. Right. Because, you know, if you're walking around during your day doing stuff, your hands are going to come out and you're going to need to see. Mm-hmm. So that's the big divide is, you know, how much of the face needs to be covered. Yeah. And to these these scholars, uh, some kind of just general head covering and hijab would be necessary. But a niqab or burqa that covers the whole face wouldn't be necessary. Right. But I think it's worth pointing out, you know, we're starting this history with with Islam and Muslim passages, but they didn't invent burqas. Yeah. I mean, no one really knows like when the first woman decided, hey, I'm going to cover myself completely. But it's thought she did so because of class issues. She was saying, hey, I'm so wealthy that I'm just going to cover myself entirely. Yeah. You don't need to have your hands free. You don't need to have extra mobility in order to do things because you are, you know, you have a more leisurely lifestyle. A leisurely lifestyle, but it has become very much associated um, with Muslim culture. So that's why we're starting here. And, you know, like we said, the Muslim scholars are pretty divided on how much you have to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's and, you know, there are other passages that we're not going to go into about, um, you know, the, the prophet's wives are urged to keep covered. But then there's another verse that says, you know, the, the prophet's wives are different from any other women. And uh, there was some evidence, according to the BBC, that one of the the dictates that uh, that wives would be behind a screen was just because Muhammad had this guest that wouldn't leave. And so he was just saying, like, look, my women are behind a screen and you need to go. And so it's 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 divisive. Imagine that a religious text being divisive <laughs> among the faithful. Um, and uh, the BBC also points out that um, there are. Only a few, you know, references to veiling in the hadith, which are sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and most only refer to um, something called the kimar, which is restricted to just to head coverings, not to face coverings. And it says that um, the full face covering is never explicitly commanded by Muhammad. Right. So if if you can get away with just wearing a headscarf, a lot of scholars are saying, and a lot of people in let's say France. I mean, France is not saying no headscarves. Mm-hmm. They're saying no full face coverings. So the argument could be made that if, you know, scholars can agree that you need to fully cover your face, why would you? Sure. And these people are just saying, you know, this is the way we're interpreting the text and it's a sign of extreme piety. And, you know, that's how we're going to do it. But there are rules. You don't have to wear it in front of basically any male relative um, other Muslim women, though non-Muslim women, you should probably wear it in front of. Um, but there are exceptions. You don't have to wear it 24-7. So while in Western culture, we might consider, you know, a woman who chooses to fully veil herself as someone who's just, 
you know, kind of subjugating themselves to gender inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, some Muslim women say that they wear the full covering as a means to actually gain more equality by covering their full body out. They're no longer um, an object of, uh, you know, males like sexual gaze. They're not going out just to, you know, like satisfy another man's lust. It reserves their sexual identity for um, their husbands mm-hmm. um, and actually makes them feel more liberated mm-hmm. when they go out in public. Right. Uh, there was a pretty famous editorial by Naomi Wolf who wrote The Beauty Myth, a uh, pretty famous book. And she interviewed all these women and said, you know, underneath the veil, these women are just madly sexually in love with their husbands. And it's just a matter of keeping what is private, private, and what is public, public. Which, you know, in, in the West, we've got people like Britney Spears walking around, all these scantily clad women. And you could say that, you know, being... Almost naked is just as damaging for our society as we think being fully clothed is damaging for their society. Mm-hmm. Um, and Naomi, Naomi Wolf got a lot of kickback for this because, you know, other, other people would write, well, you know, not wearing a full veil got some of these women killed. Right. And, you know, in the Taliban, if you, in the days of the Taliban in Afghanistan, if you deviated in any way from the dress code, you know, you could be publicly humiliated and punished. So it's very hard to separate, you know, people, who think that the women are forced to wear it from these women who are, you know, insisting to all these reporters, no, you know, we want to wear it because it keeps us modest. It keeps, you know, us equal on equal terms when we're just going around the market. I think it's very hard to believe that women would choose to wear it. Although I will say, you know, if you were waking up five minutes before you're supposed to leave and you don't have time for a shower, there are days when I wish I could wear a full veil. I'm just saying. Covering. Well, yeah, I mean, like going back to that um, issue of choice, um, I think one reason why uh, we find it so perhaps so offensive in the West is, uh, you know, in the last days of the regime of Saddam Hussein, he advocated and basically dictated that women wear full coverings and was really starting to institute more of the um, these religious Extremes, which is something that Mona El Tahawe pointed out in a New York Times column, sort of in response to Naomi Wolf's column in the Sydney Morning Herald that was sort of advocating, um, on, on behalf of women who wear burqas. She was saying that, you know, she says, I'm a Muslim, I'm a, and I'm a feminist, and I detest the full body veil. It erases women from society and has nothing to do with Islam. And she says, you know, I, I blame, um, the uh, growing popularity of the the burqa on the success of the ultra conservative Salafi ideology basically it just sort of represents these you know fringe extremes of uh, Islam and um, kind of gets away from the actual heart of the religion. Mm-hmm. But I do I don't know I when I was researching this article that I wrote for our site on on veiling it does seem that there is a correlation between countries where women are required to wear veils. And extreme human rights violations. You know, if you can't leave your house without a male, if you can't go to school, to me, those are the bigger issues than saying, let's get these veils off the women. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that this is sort of what we're trying to get to at the heart of this symbolism is it's such a symbol to people that they can't imagine, you know, that's got the symbol's got to be gone first before they'll get to the fact that these women can't leave their homes. Whereas these women are saying, yes, come help us, come help us leave our homes, but don't worry about what we're wearing. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, and I thought that um, uh, that Altahawe made an interesting point um, towards the end of the column. 
um, she was saying that, you know, she, she was in Cairo and she was wearing, um, just the head covering, mm-hmm. no veil and a woman in a burqa, uh, criticized her for, for not fully covering herself up. And she said, and this is a quote, she says, um, I've heard, uh, censored arguments made for the burqa in which the woman is portrayed as a diamond ring or a precious stone that needs to be hidden in order to prove her quote unquote worth. Unless we challenge it, the burqa and by extension, the erasure of women becomes the pinnacle of piety. So if men, um, you know, in the Quran, men are also held to, you know, standards of modesty as well, but obviously not as drastic at all. So I can see her point where do we really need to, um, associate, you know, piety with having to be completely covered from mm-hmm. society's gaze. Mm-hmm. But then it goes back to the matter of choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to exercise your religion and say, okay, I believe that to be pious, I need to be fully clothed. Then, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of people in the West are uncomfortable with this religion in particular. Well, and I think it also comes down to an issue of whether or not the role that government can play um, in, in dictating how we dress and how we practice our religion. I mean, is it as wrong for Saddam Hussein to essentially dictate that women be fully covered whenever we, whenever they leave the house and for Nicolas Sarkozy to say women cannot be fully covered right. when they go out into society? I mean, is one, you know, well, I don't want to start getting into, <laughs> I want to start getting into the debate of whether one is worse than the other, but, but it, it has a little bit of the smell of hypocrisy. Yeah. Let's say that. So I think in that comparison, Sarkozy gets a bit of a pass just because, you know, his stance probably fulfills more of what we think is is correct. You know, we have ideals where we don't have to cover ourselves, where we don't think that extreme piety is demonstrated by a full veil. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we, you know, we probably do think that if, a, if you know, someone came up to us and was like, you're going to wear this sheet around, we'd be like... Oh, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So it, it fulfills our ideal, our, our ideals. But, um, you know, it's just who, like you said, who can dictate that? Yeah. And I think it's become, you know, just such a challenging debate, too, because it's such a loaded symbol at this point, um, because we now associate the image, you know, of a woman in a full burqa um, with, you know, the, these very fringe kind of terrorist Islamic, you know, all of these really negative things. Whereas, you know, a woman is simply practicing, you know, it doesn't mean that she embraces any of these like negative ideals. She's just trying to, um, you know, possibly, uh, portray her, you know, religious devotion. Right. Um, but whether or not she's being forced to do so or not is, is also another question we have to answer. So. Right. The woman who didn't get um, French citizenship because she wouldn't remove her veil. There were numerous articles I read about how, you know, they would go to her house and she'd say, you know, I just this is what I want to do. I don't defer to my husband um, in private life. You know, he would never restrict me from leaving the home. Um, and one of the things they used to kind of, you know, they were going through making this checklist of how well she'd assimilated. And it was kind of demeaning. One of the things they put in her file was like, oh, she's willing to see a male gynecologist. And that was somehow a sign that, you know, she was enlightened enough to be considered. But at the end of the day, she wouldn't take off, you know, this piece of clothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Christians over history are not free of, you know, not. I mean, sorry. 
Christians over history have committed some, you know, pretty heinous acts. Right. I mean, but no one's saying, you know, if you're wearing a cross, then you're somehow embodying all these um, ideals of these people long ago who did awful things. The unfortunate fact for these women is that, you know, Islam and fundamentalists who want to to, you know, use text to support blowing people up. That's happening today. So we're trying to to, you know, regulate it today. And the thing is, you know, when I was researching all of this and thinking about um, what we were going to say today, uh, the episode that we did on female circumcision came to mind because I think it's, you know, I mean, it's it's such a testy debate as well, because you go into, you know, whether or not you are imposing, you know, your Western standards on other people, whether it should just come down to basic human rights. This is a human rights issue, you know, something that just should be completely banned and liberate women from it. Is it just an issue of choice? I mean, it's, it's, I think that's also why, you know, we aren't here to say yes or no one way or the other, whether or not women should wear burqas, but just sort of sort out where this debate came from in the first place and Mm why, why the, the clothing even exists. And, uh, and this debate, this sort of legal debate, uh, has, has reached the U.S. Um, as of January 1st, students at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, uh, will not be allowed to wear, quote, any head covering that obscures a student's face for reasons of safety and security. And obviously that means that, uh, you know, a, a Muslim female would not be allowed to wear a burqa either on campus or off campus for internships or clinical rotations. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not that's, you know, violating any sort of rights that they have. Right. And also they couldn't wear the niqab because I do think that people see a distinction between the two. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's definitely a big difference when you can look someone in the eye, Yeah, which is actually an argument that um, a writer named Anne Applebaum made for Slate was that, you know, if you are... In the West, you should go by sort of the standards of local politeness, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. You know, if we go overseas to like a temple or a church, you have to, you know, you can't wear shorts. You have to cover your arms, like let's say if you go into St. Peter's in Rome. So just by virtue of them being in the West, these women should, you know, obey standards of politeness. And if you're in class, I could see being in class and maybe your teacher couldn't hear you if you're covered behind a veil. Mm-hmm. But like Kristen said, we're not going to try and go pro-con either side. We've looked at, you know, a few sides of this. Um, it's it's going to be impossible to suss out. It's impossible to say whether Sarkozy is doing a good thing, a liberating thing, or if it's, you know, just making a problem worse. But I do think one thing that we can that we can say openly is that being legally forced to cover yourself up when you leave the house you know, or putting your being at risk for being uh, attacked or murdered if you are not fully covered up is not right. You oh, know, it's, that is, you know, total uh, that is a human rights violation. And that does promote gender inequity. And that is something that women should not be subjected to. I think that we can say that. I think it we get into a little trickier territory with the issue of choice. If in, you know, a country like France where you can wear whatever you want, you can wear, you know, a bikini out or a burqa um, and not risk getting, you know, arrested. Um, I think you, you get into trickier territory when you say you legally have to, you know, take it off. Right. And, you know, I think that's the problem that a lot of people in the West have is they assume that everyone who wears one must have been forced to. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that with this podcast, just a slight bit, we've we've maybe shown why a woman would want to wear it. 
um, without being legally obligated to do so. Yeah. But still, such a tricky debate. Such a tricky thing. But I mean, then again, you think about things like makeup and think about the arguments that, you know, feminists in the United States get into over, you know, what's what you can wear and what you can't wear. It's mm-hmm. Women's clothing, I think, is always going to be a, a tricky subject. We should just go uh, go to nudity. Band marriage. <laughs> go to nudity. <laughs> Let's just go back to get, get back to nature. Garden of Eden. Like, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> let us know what you guys think. Um, Burkas, pro, con, experiences with them. Yeah. What you think? Let us know your thoughts on this very controversial issue. And in the meantime, let's read some emails. So I got an email here from Tamara. She said, just listened to the Placenta podcast and I'm wondering why cord blood donation wasn't mentioned. Even though I would never consider something like a placentaphagy or using my placenta to make a teddy bear, I did feel somewhat thankful to it for helping to get my son here safe and sound. A friend had told me about cord blood banking, which involves removing the stem cell-rich blood from the umbilical cord and placenta and cryogenically preserving it for later use. After doing some research, I found that the cost of storing the blood to be prohibitive, but it did come across information about donating it. After my baby's birth, a nurse came to the OR to collect the cord blood, and I got to see the placenta and thank it for all of its hard work. My son's cord blood was donated to the American Red Cross and may be used for research or to treat and cure people with anemia, leukemia, and other blood and bone cancers. Very cool. Awesome. We should do a podcast about cord blood donation. Yes. Stay tuned. I'm going to read another one about that podcast from Emily, who writes, Nearly 13 years ago, my little brother was born. During my mother's pregnancy with him, she had decided that she would keep the placenta and, like mentioned in the podcast, bury it under a tree for my brother, even though we were not Hawaiian. I guess she just never got around to burying it because the placenta is still sitting in our freezer in a plastic Chapman's chocolate ice cream container. This never really struck me as odd as it has been there for most of my childhood, and from time to time we even pull it out to look at. But considering my placenta, like most others in the Western world, was disposed of as medical waste, I guess it is a little weird. Weird or not, I think it is kind of cool to be able to take it out of the freezer and poke at it with a spoon, even if we never got around to burying it, which is likely. And I have to say, Emily invited us to Canada, Kristen, to come over and look at the placenta. And assumedly, we can poke it with a spoon, too. Well, that might be the most unique invitation I've ever received. Thank you, Emily. Yes. Thank you for telling us about the frozen placenta. That was the subject line of the email. Yeah. I loved it. And now whenever I think of Canada, I'm going to think of uh, placentas in a freezer. And you're going to have a hard time with the Olympics coming up. <sighs> but if you guys have got emails um, or invitations to Canada to throw out, just email us. It's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can check our blog, How To Stuff. I think at one point, Molly, you uh, wrote a blog about uh, things to do with your placenta, too. I did. If you want a little recap. I kind of went crazy with the placenta research. In fact, I saw uh, my little baby cousin the other day and started asking her about her placenta. Love it. She's four months old. I digress. There's a blog called How To Stuff, and there is a placenta entry if you're interested. And we've got an article on burkas at our site. It's called um, Why Do Some Cultures Require Women to Wear Veils? And it is at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 
episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.